0: Winning thought leadership demands multidisciplinary collaboration and execution. That's why I believe it's the quintessential B2B team sport. Sadly, most B2B outfits find team play in the context of thought leadership extremely challenging. That's because they hire iconoclasts to sit in ivory towers and think big thoughts that are often devoid of real-world applicability or practicality. They then incent these big thinkers to go one-on-one in a market where victory demands zone play and picking up your teammates. To thrive amid the creative chaos of identifying, researching, writing, packaging, and disseminating big ideas, B2B organizations need the contributions of many people, some of whom excel at left brain thinking, others who favor right brain cogitation. It's rare that you find someone who can master both cerebral hemispheres. And I was fortunate to work closely with one of those Renaissance people. Paul Roerig is the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer at Ascendion, a digital engineering and talent solution company that helps hundreds of clients accelerate business transformation. I met Paul in 2008 when he was a Principal Analyst at Forrester Research and I was running thought leadership at Cognizant Technology Solutions. In late 2010, I ran to Paul at a Cognizant offsite meeting and innocently asked, when did we start inviting analysts to our year-end Global Planning Confab? His response, I am one of you. Almost immediately, I found Paul to be someone who excelled at developing big ideas. As a former professional musician, academic, and analyst, he was quite adept at jamming on a variety of thought leadership initiatives, from fact-based research reports through short-form transmedia that combines lighter text, videos, and animation. We worked closely together when he led marketing for Cognizant's business process operations, when he founded and managed the Cognizant Center for the Future of Work and when he took on a strategy-setting role embedded within Cognizant's Digital Business and Technology Business Unit. Over the years, we also collaborated on a variety of award-winning and best-selling books that Paul co-authored. "Monster," A Tough Love Letter on Taming the Machines that Rule Our Lives, Jobs, and Future, published in 2021. What to Do When Machines Do Everything, published in 2017. And Code Halos, How the Digital Lives of People, Things, and Organizations are Changing the Rules of Business, published in 2014. Over the years, Paul has taken center stage at a wide range of public, academic, and industry events, such as the World Economic Forum, Dreamforce, Oracle Open World, the Churchill Club, the Atlantic Festival, Politico, and many, many more. He's regularly been featured in publications such as Forbes, Business Week, The Economic Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Fortune India, Clarin, Times of India, Computer World, and others. Clearly, Paul has quite a bit to say about everything thought leadership, so let's get right to it. Paul, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks so much, Alan. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, thank you for your far too kind introduction. So let's, let's kick it
0: off. You started your business career on the hardware side of things at Digital Equipment Corp, Compaq, and HP. How and why did you make the transition to Forrester and the more analytical, interpretive side of the tech business?
1: That's a good question. I, I had a fantastic time at those, those companies um, helping do big deals. So I, like you said, I'd been a music, musician for a while. I had been an academic. And then I joined uh, DEC, actually, which then became uh, Compaq and later on HP. And and got a chance to do big services deals. So I was, um, you know, I was actually on the delivery side, and you know, I was working with clients and doing pursuits and doing implementation. And so I really learned a lot about, you know, our industry, um, you know, with you know from the front lines. And so I had a background in in doing research and writing and, and things like that. And um, and I mean, the truth is, I had little kids, and and I was on the road all the time, and. And I wanted to find a little bit better of a balance point. And I had done a lot um, in the services business for a while. And and so I started looking around and and this company called Forrester, you know, we just met each other and and, um, interviewing with the team there was fantastic. It's a terrific company. So I was super excited about the chance to be able to write and do research and learn more about the industry overall and work with some really exciting and engaging people. And and all of that turned out to happen.
0: That's wonderful, yeah. So what did you learn at Forrester that you applied to the thought leadership strategy you embraced at Cognizant that fueled the Center for the Future Work, the pioneering stuff you guys were doing, and helped Cognizant differentiate itself as really a leader in the marketplace, differentiated from its competitors, many of whom were saying the same things that Cognizant was saying, but you guys came up with a different way of framing it, and in expressing it,
1: yeah, I mean, you know, I can't express enough gratitude to the Forrester team and and the company that George Colony built, and and the and even the early founders like guys like Bill Blue and some of the old, you know some of the original analysts like John McCarthy. I mean, they built a remarkable culture around being bold, um, coloring outside the lines, and we were really encouraged to, to find the edge ideas. And, and then they taught us with, with methods and people and processes in, in a, you know, in a small company on like, how do you actually um, build a business around serving others with ideas? And, and that's the main thing that I, I think that lesson I learned, you know, firsthand from, from those folks that I mentioned, as well as people that are you know fantastic analysts in the industry still right you know people that are still working in Forrester right people like you know Liz Herbert and and Bill Martarelli and and their colleagues right and and so um i learned how important it was to to build to create and craft resonant ideas and stories in a way that delivered value to people who were consuming it and were actually Um, at risk of just being overwhelmed by massive amounts of content. So for something to really matter, it had to have an authenticity. It had to be well-researched. It had to be true and and also be well-constructed and and deliver very practical advice. And those are lessons that I learned, you know, starting in journalism school, but I really, you know, the finishing school was absolutely Forrester. And then we took those ideas into um, Cognizant and the Center for the Future of Work with the idea of service to, to the consumer, right? That was the whole point is to like, give people great ideas that they can act on, uh, deliver to them in a way that's compelling and provocative and maybe even a little bit fun. Um, and that kind of, that actually worked. You, you raise an
0: interesting point. You're, you know, the, this, the craft of storytelling, really focusing in on edge ideas, giving people something really thought provoking to wrap their heads around all very important in terms of how to build cognizance, eminence, and reputation in the marketplace as uh, being a partner of choice. But how do you then square that with the need for the the sales and the biz dev people to focus on what they can sell today? You guys are out a little bit over the curve, a little little bit looking beyond the, the next two to three years, maybe five, seven, 10 years out. How do you help the salespeople to position cognizant with your thought leadership? to be effective in continuing the momentum that the company had in those years?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we it's a great question as well. And and you know that that was, you know, because we worked there together, you know that that was a constant question that we were always trying to do our best to ensure that we were answering that. And to me, and I think to all of us, I don't want to speak for you, but, but to all of us, it felt like, you know, as long as the true north was, how do we help the person that we're trying to serve make a good decision right based on something that's true and authentic and accessible and meaningful and ha- with emotional resonance because they're trying to solve big problems right and if you talk about too far out in the future and you're talking about you know flying cars and things like that we really didn't go there um we talked about you know there might have been a long-term strategy question that somebody was trying to answer but we always tried to find that that sweet spot, if you will, that so that so that it was it was practical and applicable to them, right? So I think the the takeaway that you know one of the things that I learned from doing this, you know, with you is is that if you keep that as your as your true north, right? That the the ideas have to be of service to someone who's trying to consume it, right? Then the other problem actually kind of solves itself because those are the questions that the clients and the potential clients are asking. So if you can help answer that, then the sales team is going to be thrilled because now you're going to be invited to have a dialogue. If you go too far out, you know, we're going to mine, you know, Mars or something like that. That's like most people, that's not on their, you know, their strategic event horizon. Right. But if you as long as you keep it relevant, right, the salespeople are going to love it because. You're being of service to the clients, and that's what all good salespeople want to do. They want to be of service and they want to be part of the dialogue. And if you can find that spot and really spend a lot of thought on making sure that you don't get too far out ahead or too far behind, then then you're you are also you're serving the client, but you're also going to, you know drive some economic value for the for the company that you're working with.
0: That's interesting because um, A thought leadership culture that embodies these things that you're talking about is so critical to really having a voice and a really credibility, credible voice in the marketplace. I just put together with some of my colleagues, a paper that looks at thought leadership culture and Mm -hmm. how really it has to be influenced from an outside in perspective, values, beliefs, and behaviors that you embrace as an organization have to be defined and evolved in terms of how your customer perceives you. And without that, a true north will never come to pass.
1: You you got it. I mean, that's exactly right. Otherwise, it's just sort of, you know, it's self-serving and it might, you know, might, you know, feel satisfying, hey, I wrote this white paper, but it doesn't really if it's not of service to the to somebody that you're trying to help, it's not going to go anywhere. And there's, you know, you and I know that there's boatloads of that Content and it takes a lot of time and a lot of money and people put a lot of care into it and it's not bad by any means, but if it's not written with that philosophy of I'm trying to serve someone, I'm trying to help them solve a problem or even ask a bit a a good question, you know, then you get in these kind of these stories where maybe thought leadership it's like well we did this white paper and nobody downloaded it, so thought leadership is useless and that's like well, you know maybe that was but um, it's not it's not useless if you do it right.
0: Absolutely. So talking about doing it right and looking at it in terms of how you serve your customer best, um, you guys had a very rigorous ideation process and a lot of it started with good primary research. How critical is good primary research to creating a solid thought leadership foundation?
1: Oh yeah, it's essential. I mean, it's, um, and, and again, this is something that we worked on all the time, right? If you start with what is, what's the problem someone's trying to solve, and then what's the thing that needs, what's the gap? What's the knowledge gap? And then the, that drives the primary research. I think we're, sometimes companies get into trouble. It's like, well, we need a white paper. <laughs> okay. So it, if you start with, here, here's how we're going to be of service to clients. It doesn't matter what business you're in. Like we're, We work in the technology industry, but it doesn't really matter. Right. You could be in any kind of industry. You could be in healthcare. you can be in retail. And there's always big questions about ideas. What's coming next? How do we interpret it? What are we what are we missing? Right. Every good leader is thinking about that constantly. So good thought leadership on the on the provider side, on the helper side, if you will. Right. If you create those those assets that answer those questions or begin to answer those questions, or unlock something unknown, or inspire somebody, all of that falls into, you know, this is a good thought leadership piece, we call it thought leadership, because it drives things forward. And that is, that's the, that's the entire key. If you can continue to do that, and focus on doing that, then good things will happen both on the, on the, you know, the side of being helped, and also the side that's doing the help.
0: And I know you're having worked closely with you that research design is very important. You know if you don't ask the right questions, you're not going to get the right answers, and you're not going to be able to make sense of whatever answers you get. So can you talk a little bit about your whole thought process in terms of designing quality research that has integrity?
1: yeah that is, i mean and and again, we you know you know we we ground on this, and it takes it's and I learned this in grad school, you know, it's really, really hard to to ask a good question. It's it's a lot harder to ask a good question. Um, But if you do that, well, I'm not saying we did it right all the time. But if you do that better, then you get a better primary research study design versus, hey, we need to do a white paper. And we're really interested in, I don't know, quantum computing. So we're going to design a white paper for quantum computing. Well, that's, Maybe that's true, but if but then you've got to make sure that, that you're serving the people that you're trying to serve. Um, but that research design, you know, getting together and really coming, starting with, how do we respond to that? And then what is the right question to answer, the right set of questions? And you you know, right, we went back and forth and questions would come in and they would go out and then we would pivot. And it was all before we even you know, asked a single question. It was like, what is a thing that we're trying to understand? And we would tag each question on what are we really trying to get to? And we would work on the wording and work on, then you get down into actual instrument design. Um, but if you don't start with what's the right question to ask, what are we really trying to understand? Then the methods part becomes really impossible because then you're all over the place and you collect data that you don't need. And then you end up and you're trying to do an analysis and you're like, ah, we didn't really answer the question we were trying to answer.
0: That means to the end is so important. If you just focus on the end, you're lost for sure. And most importantly, as you said, that hypothesis, really honing down on what it is you really want to learn and understand and what you need to prove or disprove to make the piece work. And more importantly, I remember many conversations with you. So what is that big headline? What does the headline say?
1: that's a pretty good method uh, you know tactically it's like you know we had a headline for each question when we put these things together you know and we didn't always use them because actually once you look at the data sometimes there wasn't a headline but there could have been a headline and then then we did get more bold and provocative headlines and and they had resonance with people we were trying to serve so if it was a technical uh, about a technology or an economic impact or things like that um those are high value questions that people have, regardless of what industry you're in. And so if you have something new to say, something fresh to say that's clear and bold and true and authentic, and then there's a story that's told well with words and data sets and graphics, and, and it's interpreted in a way that adds value, that, that's kind of the, that's what we were always shooting for. I don't know if we ever hit the, if we always hit it, but we we're certainly shooting in that direction.
0: I think we did better than most organizations, but believe, we'll let others judge that. Yeah. So you talked about methods, and the, the one interesting element of uh, your process was the data party. When you sat everybody down, you looked at all the data, you tried to make sense of it. These were very, very uh, long-winded, arduous types of, of meetings in which we just go through the data round and round and round. and can you talk a little bit about how important that is and what your thought process was behind that?
1: Yeah, I don't know how, yeah, we're argy, they were hard, but I thought they were fun. I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you know, it wasn't You're a hard, for
0: punishment. Bad. I think
1: <laughs> no, it was, I mean, if you, if you really are committed, spend a lot of time and money trying to get to what's the right question. You've, you know, looked at how are you going to be of service? Um, and then you design a study and then you collect all this data. So that's, you know, it's expensive, it's time consuming, it's complicated, it's invasive, right? You're pushing things out there in the world and asking people to answer your questions and stuff. And then you get this data, which, you know, we treat it as like a, a gift, which it was, it is a gift, right? It's very hard to get, it's rare. And if you do it right, it's really super valuable. But then what is inside the data, right? And we would have these data parties where we would have everybody that was involved in the study just going through, what did what does this say? What does this, what does it really, and what does it mean? Because it's easy enough to print out, you, you know, uh, graphs, right, but what does the graph mean? And how do you interpret it? Because if you're just reporting data, you're not really adding the last, you know, super important layer of creating insight from the data. And so the data parties were, what does this say? you know, were we right, you know, was a, or do we have a good hypothesis? Not were we right, but do we have a good hypothesis, right? And do we have something new and bold and provocative to say that's going to be meaningful to the people we're trying to serve? And what is that story? And so then we would, and then as you know, right, where we started, you know, sometimes it was where we ended up, but a lot of times the data party, we would come up with new insights and we would do and and we did it collaboratively, right because you might look at it and go, "Well, I see this," and somebody else might look at it and go, "Well, I see that," and then you would it would be arduous because you have to find out what is the truth. So it's almost like unlocking the truth within a data set, the essential truth that means something to the people you're trying to serve. otherwise you're just you're just hitting you know print on on you know huge reams of data without the interpretation, without the nuance, without the, you know, the, the storytelling element around it, because data is only data, right? Until it's interpreted and converted into a story that has an emotional resonance and that answers something important to somebody trying to make a decision in their lives. And if you you can do that, then you're, then you're not, then that's a good thing.
0: And you were very big on distilling signal from noise and you should always Talk about how people shouldn't just be reciting the findings, that you need that interpretive layer, that you need to explain what it means. Don't tell us that, you know, nine out of 10 people said this. Tell us what does that mean? And
1: exactly. that's much more important. It is important. Maybe that's, you know, nine out of 10 people agree that this, a clear sky on Earth is blue. So you've proven something. That's not going to help somebody make a decision. And, and what does that mean to somebody who's trying to do something? You know, that's a a frivolous example. But if if you've got economic data around, you know, where's the market heading around a a kind of technology, right? That's super important to somebody that's, you know, in retail or in, you know, whatever industry they're in. And so they're trying to make sense of the world. And if we're just, you know, regurgitating data without interpreting and providing a story... I don't, think, I don't think thought leadership is, is, or what we call thought leadership, is really doing as much as it can to be of service.
0: And given all that you've just gone through, you also were very big on the fact that you needed to tell stories in colorful ways and narrative structures that really helped to, to bring the storyline out and back it with good facts and figures and examples and evidence and, and whatnot. And um, that's not easy to do. Most most B2B organizations write fairly boring, dry, bland types of white papers. And you and the Center for the Future Work and the work that we did together, we always st- strove to do something different, better, and uh, outside of the box a little bit. So can you talk about your process there and how you really come up with those really captivating storylines?
1: Well, I, I mean, one of my, and, I, and you know this, right? But one of my favorite you know business books of all time was Creativity, Inc. by uh, Ed Catmull, who founded founded and ran pixar and disney a- animation and you know his whole idea was how do you tell a, a good story and he wanted to do it with computers i mean that's how the whole thing that's how pixar started this guy was he was a good he was a a, a decent animator and a decent computer scientist and he wanted to put both together and do something extraordinary and then he did um and then and then he created businesses around it and so how you know the whole story around how do you monetize creativity how do you how do you achieve um you know an emotional resonance in his case with or pixar's case with a broad you know audience and for ours you know i think the same themes hold true right it's, ma- it's certainly a smaller audience so trying to solve more specific and finite questions but the lessons about how do you tell a good story are are absolutely you know relevant and there are companies that are doing it you know really well right some of the stuff that mckin you know I think the center, you know, did did it really well. I think McKinsey does it really well. Accenture, clearly, you know, they're thinking about uh, the world this way. But if you put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're trying to serve, the idea is, you know, how would they consume information? And we're all inundated with, you know, it's back to signal and noise. We're all inundated. Everything becomes, signal becomes noise if there's too much of it, right? And so part of thought leadership is sorting through the noise And creating that crystalline story that that is true, authentic, supported by the best available data, which may not be perfect, but it's the best available data, and interpreted in a way so that somebody receiving that signal says, okay, this is important. I like it, right? Because we're humans and we like stories and we want to see stories that resonate with us. And it can be useful. I think that's kind of where we were trying to, you know, we're, and we did this together. This is what we were trying to do to be of service.
0: So what role does data visualization techniques, video animation play in winning thought leadership so that it's not just viewed as eye candy, it's really part and parcel of telling the story?
1: Yeah, that's a super important question, Alan. And it does come back to putting the story first. It's so like some companies will say, "Well, I want a white paper." And then somebody will say, "Well, we need to have an animated version of the data." And it's like, "Well, do you?" Like, <laughs> you know, if it if it has emotional resonance and authenticity and truth and is helpful to people that are consuming it and helps create a clearer signal rather than noise, you should definitely do it. It's worth every penny. But it but if not, which is often the case, um Without having that clear story, it just becomes, like you said, it's it's maybe eye candy. It's really kind of gets in the way of the story. Like I think you know, it's like a great song. Some of the the Disney Pixar stories are so beautifully constructed, even though they're beautifully produced, you could actually tell the story with stick figures, right? You know, just like a beautiful song. I mean, it's they're hard to break, and that's what I you know. With, from a thought leadership perspective, you, you get the, the assets to be that good, where it's that clear and that true and that authentic and that emotionally resonant, the how you tell the story just expands it even more. But if you start with, we want a white paper and then we also want a website and then we want an animated thing and we want, you know, then you're then you're not, if you're starting there and versus what are the questions that we're trying to answer Who are we trying to serve? How do we really get the right story uh, put together that's bold and provocative and interesting and helpful? Right. Then you, then, then you're, if you, if you take that one path, then you're avoiding spending a lot of time and a lot of money for not a lot of benefit for anybody, really. But if the story is great, then you can apply these other storytelling mechanisms in a really, in a really valuable way. Exactly.
0: I think you have to be true to the fundamentals of storytelling and not just uh, throw things out there just for the sake of showing that you can do it. It has to fit the whole concept and the construct of what you're trying to share. And you're right. That North Star needs to be the recipient of the information and how they're going to process what you're what you're sharing with them. So I couldn't agree more. Why don't we pivot now to more traditional media books? Uh, You were involved in three award-winning, best-selling books, and you guys came up with some really thought-provoking ideas. Can you talk about that process and how something became a book rather than a report or a blog or Mm -hmm. some long-form piece of content?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, and you were there at the beginning, too, so you know that we didn't – we started out with what's the story we wanted to tell, and when the story itself took shape – It was outside of a white paper and outside of a video and outside, it was like, again, it was back to the fundamentals, Alan, like you said, it was about the, what's the story you want to tell. And when we were starting to tell the story about Code Halos, when it got long enough, it was like, well, this isn't really a white paper, and it's, it's actually something else. And it was, you know, maybe the, the level of complexity went up so that, Hey, we needed a, we needed a little more space to be able to let some of the ideas breathe. You know, it's a lot more data, a lot more anecdotes, a lot more applied experience. What, uh, how are we thinking about this? There were some new terms and new models, and they need a little bit of time, right? And so the first book that we put together actually kind of grew out of, you know, all the stuff that we were talking about. What's the what? How are we trying to be of service to the people that we want to help? And then what is the true, authentic story that we wanted to tell? And then the rest of it was, how do we actually do that? Um, and that was a big, you know, a big learning journey for all of us, which is, you know, because they get harder than, you know, when you get, you know, I've never made a, a movie, but I imagine it's harder than a, a short film, right? So, you know, uh, so the book was the same thing. and And so all the fundamental things that we were talking about before about how do you ask a good question? How do you establish, you know, utility to somebody who's consuming whatever asset you're creating? And then, and then the asset just shaped, like the book actually came around the story and the data and the insights that we wanted to talk about more than, more than anything else.
0: No, I, I remember that quite well. The issue is that many organizations, though, you and your co-authors held very important positions at the organization. Writing a book, not a part-time endeavor, you got to be all in or you're not going to get out of it what you really need to. How did you sell it up the food chain and tell people, hey, this is really important? Give us some space. Yeah, you know, we'll still do our day jobs, but you have to give us cut us a little slack so that we can do this and do it well.
1: Well, I mean, and you know those those leaders as well as I do. I mean, it was we it wasn't really a sales job that we had to do. It was here's the story we want to tell, and and clients were looking for it, right? And so the leaders that we were working with at the time they they had their their they knew from firsthand experience, the kind of problems that clients were trying to solve. And they knew what was going to establish resonance. So they knew that this mattered to the people that we wanted to help. And so for for them to say, I don't want to say it was easy because we did have to make a business justification um, and and we did and it worked out, thankfully. But we went in logically with with the idea of being of service to others. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's the investment it's going to take on our side, and and here's what we think is going to happen. And fortunately, those you know all those wires kind of lined up, but I wouldn't say we had to sell it up the line in the sense that there was a huge amount of resistance. Um, the leaders of the company were they were open-minded and, co- and incredibly supportive, um, and very kind of progressive, like they were like, "Yeah, this sounds like a good idea. Let's just try it." You know, so we managed the downside risk. We did a very heavy lift on our own. Um, as you kind of hinted at. Um, and uh and then and it was super fun, right? It was fun to do because it opened doors for the company because we were being helpful with a story that had utility and emotional resonance for the people we were trying to serve.
0: So after we finished Code HALOS, I remember distinctly, I don't know if it was you or one of your other co-authors who said to me, I am never doing this again. This is too hard. I don't know if I could live through another book. And then I don't know if it was nine or 12 months later, I heard kind of that you guys were working on something and there you were in the middle of it once again, what changed your mind?
1: The people were trying to help. I mean, it became like, the, you know, from, from a Code Halo perspective, it was about um, creating business models around data. And that came out in 2014. And then, you know, when we were going around talking about Code Halos, the new ideas kept popping up. And and when they were popping up over and over again, it was like, hey, what about this, you know, applied artificial intelligence and taking the data that we were talking about and really what are the machines that are changing everything, how business is done, how we're living our lives. And so that machines came as a natural extension, you know, it really was a chapter two to code halos in a sense, because it was really about the machines doing more and more and shaping how work was being done and how value was being created and how we were living our lives and you know educating our children and banking and healing ourselves and insuring ourselves and and so that was what machines was about and and as we were going around and speaking to different companies and the questions that were coming up and the and the provocations and the interest around these different things that's what all that's what was like hey wait there's another story here and and maybe we should tell it
0: yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I guess, you know, you're a former journalist, recovering academic, and somebody who consumes a lot of content. I know you're very well read. But sadly, I don't think a lot of people are these days. Is long-form thought leadership dead in the world that seems to thrive on shorter-form blogs and videos and bursty and often erroneous tweets and other misinformation that percolates across social media?
1: Well, I think irrelevant stories and low utility data is is probably kind of jump the shark, if you will. It doesn't, you know, people don't want that. And there's so much content available right now. Um, it gets back to what you were saying before, right? It, it's the signal. And if the signal is clear, regardless of the form factor, right? People definitely, you know, all of us are, right? Life, life in, you know, 2022 is, is not the same you know, as it was in, you know, 1962, right? And so um, I think, I don't know, it was, but um, I'm assuming that's true. What we need as participants in the, as business leaders is, is we still need new ideas. We still need, um, you know, provocation. We still need to learn more about what's going on. And all of those are, are gaps that good thought leadership can close and hey, look! If it's going to take you, you know, a few more hours to read through a book, but it's really important and really good and really interesting, that's still going to be valuable and and have resonance. You know, it's if it's boring and and uh, you know derivative and not you know doesn't really add much and feels like it's a a marketing piece, that's not going to be relevant, and that's even less relevant now that there's more content available. You know, just like a tweet can be a, a provocative thing, right? A provocative thing, you know, hey, here's a good question, or here's, you know, here's a link to something that's really cool. And um, so I don't, I, I do think that people, uh, you know, are are less patient around uh, content, just because there's so much more of it. But I still think, and I, I will, you know, and I hope it's true, that, you know, good content, good stories, you know, authentic stories, um, something that is of service, that's always going to, that's as relevant, you know, Today, as it is tomorrow, as it was yesterday?
0: Good answer. So, if we are heading towards a softer economy, whether you're a resource deprived company or a company that has some cash to to spend on this, how do you suggest companies go forward and figure out how to ideate and actually build a thought leadership program that's going to offer returns on ideas and on the investments of making those ideas publicly available?
1: Yeah, so I mean that's on everybody's mind right now, right? Because you know, there's anybody with a with a keyboard and an opinion, which is pretty much all of us, can say something we, about the economy and uh, you know, it's going to be a recession. It's not going to be a recession, it's going to be depression. It's going to be nothing. It's gonna, so you know, we're just kind of right now who knows. Right? So in context in situations like that, I think the best thing we can do is kind of just step back and say what what do we know? What do, or what do we believe to be true? So for example, right, do we believe the future of our economy is going to be less dependent on technology? Probably not. Do we think there's going to be, or do we believe it to be true that, the, that software, for example, is going to be more and more essential to how business value is created and how we conduct various aspects of our lives? It's really hard to imagine life without Facebook, Google. You know, uh, you know, Amazon, uh, Netflix, right, all of these software platforms that surround us uh, in, our, in our data or Zoom, like we're on right now, right, these are part of our lives. And it's really hard to imagine what the world would be like without them. And I think, you know, more and more business leaders are concluding that software is more essential to every value proposition. So that's a, it may not be a truth, but I think it's a pretty strong likelihood. And so, if that's true, and I'm just using this as an example from a thought leadership perspective, any ideas, you know, the and and we worked with a, you know, Malcolm Frank, who's probably one of the best thought leaders in the entire technology industry. And he said, you know, the digital economy is going to go to those who have the best ideas, right? And thought leadership is not just an engine for marketing, it's an engine for ideas that serve clients, but it also serves the company within which it operates. McKinsey and Accenture have great ideas. Some of them come from consultants. Some of them come from people who do, you know, thinking about it work, right? Some of it comes from clients. It's pulled in from consultants, right? It does it. those ideas are what shape the portfolio of tomorrow. And so what's the value of that? To me, thought leadership because it's an engine for ideas, if it's done right, you're serving clients, right? And you are getting brand eminence and you're building uh, a market position because of your good ideas. But that's only half the story. The other half is it changes your company. It changes the company within which it operates, because now you have an engine. You have people that are tasked with and good at, hopefully good at, thinking about what's coming next. So thought leadership presumed to be just an external thing like we'll throw this stuff out there and hopefully somebody will like us more versus no we have a good set of ideas they're provocative they may not all be right but at least they're interesting and they're going to help get you to a better answer that helps clients and it also helps you because you're if you're if you're good at this you're learning from the thought leadership engine as well right and we saw that happen also Right. It changes. So to me, the thought leadership engine is just well, it's marketing and we have, you know, we have a few extra dollars. So let's do a white paper. Right. That that happens all the time. And I, I just don't think that's that's, you know, sometimes it can work out, but you look at the companies that do it well, that's not at all what they're doing.
0: Not at all. There's gotta be method to the madness. So speaking about the the future of the economy and the importance of software code to that economy. Without showing your hand too much, can you give us a sense of what your thought leadership plans are at Ascendion?
1: Yeah, I mean, we think, well, certainly the software economy is just, you know, we're still in the early innings of the shift to the kind of the the overall digital economy, which is really, I think, you know, the software is the mechanism through which we engage all the other technologies, right? Whether it's your television, or your watch, or your, you know, your laptop, or your, you know, dishwasher. Software is the mechanism that we use to engage analytics and artificial intelligence and big data. We don't think that's going to change. What has changed, um, and the change seems to be accelerated, is the the notion of software engineering as the nexus point for all kind of future value. Not all, but a larger percentage of future value creation that seems to be a truth and the people that do that that build that build that software build those systems is even more important than ever before and we've seen this play out in the pandemic i think the pandemic has poured you know rocket fuel on a trend that already had started where the notion of software engineering plus a talent orchestration talent transformation model putting those two pieces together to deliver to what clients need now in a modern economy versus more of an industrial economy. I think in some senses, you know, the pandemic could well be the end of the, of the industrial, of the last industrial revolution. And so what we're doing with Ascendion is, is strengthening that engine, continuing to build out those capabilities and the ideas that we're putting out and will put out will be around that you know what is a company in a post pandemic post digital if you will world right uh what you know, what is the role of talent like we've talked a lot about that you know we had the center for the future of work um and now what is the future of work now right because the pandemic has really shifted a lot of assumptions um and proven them you know some to be right and some to be wrong and now every uh enterprise decision maker is going okay well so now what and So I think how work changes, the role of software, the role of talent, right? How we work, right? Are we really going to continue to organize in a kind of a a pseudo-industrial model where hundreds of thousands of people have to move into a cubicle every morning? I I just don't, don't think we're going to go back to that. But that's a huge opportunity for companies to lean into that true future of work. So that's what our thought leadership agenda is going to explore.
0: Well, I look forward to you guys taking those topics on and you shining a beacon of light on it to hopefully help us all get there at some point. Anything else you want to comment on? This has been a very thought-provoking and interesting conversation. Anything you didn't cover that you think is critical here?
1: Yeah, we talked a lot about you know, economics and, and the role of thought leadership. Um, the one thing that, that we didn't talk about, but we started to a little bit, is kind of the culture of, of curiosity and i think companies that do this well or that aspire to do this well i think nurturing a culture of curiosity and recognizing that that curiosity and that inquiry is of service to others as well as to your firm and that if you do that it's it's not only a business value it's fun because now you're it i mean there there's a joy in this that i think often gets overlooked i mean we kind of joked around the data party but but it's fun to joke about because we liked it, right? We liked wrestling with what are these ideas and it helped the companies we were trying to serve and it helped our company, right? And I think that's an important point, particularly now, right? So regardless of how the next economic phase plays out, you know, no company that you or I know about is sitting around with a bag of gold in the corner that just has thought leadership on it, right? And so these are... These are critical investments, and it's a real strategic decision for for every board and every C-suite, but to recognize as well that nurturing curiosity in your company, if you were to play it out the opposite and say, no, we don't want that, I don't think anybody would say that, and this is a way to do that. This is a way by building out thought leadership engines, by valuing it, I don't think you need to spend as, as much as some other companies. But, but it is important and valuable, and it is a high ROI investment to have that in your company as something that matters, because ideas matter, particularly in the post-pandemic digital economy, and companies that lean into that are going to thrive, a higher likelihood of thriving. Companies that pull away from that and say, no, we, we are, we're, not, we're not in, I think that's a pretty risky bet, to be honest.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. You can't get smarter. You can't get better as a person as an organization without having a curious mind, uh, we would embrace that entirely. In fact, the report that I've just put together with my colleagues on culture talks a little bit about that. So we are in sync on that one. Hey, Paul, I really want to thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. Thanks for joining us on everything Thought
1: Leadership. Thanks, Alan. Great to chat. I hope everybody, uh, love to hear what everybody thinks. As
0: Paul noted, being bold, coloring outside the lines, and serving others with great thoughts is critical to winning in the crowded marketplace of ideas. The Winning Thought Leadership Formula is all about creating ideas and stories that have relevance and veracity, built from rigorous data, analysis, and interpretation, and that resonate with those who you are trying to help solve big, hairy business challenges. They are your true north. But thought leaders can't get too far out ahead of the market's needs. Regardless of the topic, that means no flying cars or mining of Mars, as Paul notes. It's all about offering up practical, applicable ideas that fit into a long-term strategy today and or tomorrow. This will not only ensure that your organization engages targets, but gets your sales team involved to start or continue conversations. That happens when the dialogue is real, relevant, and in service to the client. And that's why it's essential to do your homework. And that starts with a rigorous research foundation, What's the problem? Where's the knowledge gap in the market's mind? Where's the best solution? How can the client get there from here, as Paul postulates? It's hard to ask good questions, but if you grind it out, you will achieve better study design. Once you figure out what you're trying to understand, you can develop the right methods of acquiring data, including building an effective survey instrument. In a world suffering from attention deficit syndrome and drawn to short-form, thirsty content, Paul believes there's still room for long-form content, like books, as long as they cover relevant topics and have incredible utility. That only happens when they offer new thinking on ways to solve seemingly intractable problems. As Paul says, human-like stories drawn from the best available data, told colorfully with interesting twists and turns, and books when done right will always fit that bill. Books give ideas space to breathe. New models need time and space to evolve and to be turned into compelling prose and the discussions spurred by books spawn new ideas and, if properly compiled and leveraged, can inform new products and services. These are the lessons Paul learned over the years as a thought leader and strategist. He plans to put many of them into play in his new gig at Ascendion. Like you, I look forward to hearing from him and his firm on the evolution of the software economy and the future of talent, as well as the end of the industrial economy. As Paul said, great thought leadership requires a culture of curiosity. That's something we can all ascribe to. Thanks again for joining us at Everything Thought Leadership.